Hi, welcome to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music inside and out. I'm Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone. And today we're going to talk about music lists, things like best ofs and that sort of thing. So I think the obvious place to start is just top five best Bob Dylan songs go. Okay, so number one, tight connection to my heart. Number two, (laughs) yeah. So I think (laughs) one of the big places that I wanted to start with this is maybe the overarching question is, what is the purpose of music lists? Because I think that they're... So much of music content is lists, obviously, but it's also it's also a type of content that both you and I have aggressively strayed away from, unless you've got a secret yeah. secret top 10 list channel on the side that you're not telling me about. Well, I make lists about music, but I don't really make music lists in this context, you know? Yeah. Like I did, you know, a list of like harmony vocals techniques, but that's not really what we're talking about. I think maybe it might be good to sort of, just to be clear on what we are talking about then, is things like, you know, the Rolling Stone Top 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, that sort of thing, that picks songs or albums or artists and just puts them in order and like, this is the best one, this is the second best one, and so on. Yeah, I think think that's the big thing, is lists that are trying to determine uh, quality, typically. Because, like, you you can make a list, like, I could say, like, you know a list of Canadian musicians and there's no real value judgment in that. But if I make a list where I say top 10 Canadian musicians, then suddenly there's a whole different kind of thing there. Yeah. Or if you made something like, you know, five artists that define the 2010s. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that, that, yeah, that, I, I guess that is the list content that I made and that made people very angry. And I think I think that's actually <laughs> a place we can jump in because when I made those videos, I explicitly said this is just five artists that personally I thought had an impact on the decade. This is not the five most impactful artists, anything like that. But people got really, yeah. really angry at some of the selections and omissions, which I also, to some extent, I kind of feel like a lot of music lists exist for people to get angry about. Yeah, well, to be a bit more charitable, I think they exist for people to debate. Yes. And like, I, I think, you know, a lot of that, you know, rage drives clicks. And if I'm just like, oh, best rock bands ever, and I leave out Led Zeppelin, then I get a lot of free engagement from people being like, uh, excuse me, you forgot Led Zeppelin. But I, I think that ultimately part of the fun of a list format is that you get to compare yours to mine. Yes. I get to come out here and say, these are these are the five greatest rock bands of all time. And you get to look at those and be like, I agree with four of those, but I really don't like this one. Or I think there's this other one that you forgot to mention. Oh, forgot to mention, I hate it. Uh, but th- this other one that you left out that I think really deserves to be there instead of this one that I don't like. And so it becomes an easy way to sort of engage with opinions. Whereas if I just come out and say, like, I think Welcome to the Black Parade is a good song, that puts a lot less, like, pressure on you to compare that to your own opinions because I'm not, by saying that, excluding something that you might think is better. I'm just saying I also like this. Yeah, yeah, I do think I do think you're right. Maybe I'm a little harsh by saying it's something for people to get angry to, but yeah, yeah it's definitely a place to open up discussion. 
So I used to love musicalists all of the time, like, and a lot of the time still kind of like in casual one-on-one discussions with people, I'll do things like top five albums of all time, you know, or or stuff like yeah. that. But I think I think one of the problems that I have is the kind of like, like I really like doing this stuff in a casual conversation where I kind of can just list, like if I say, top five albums of all time, I'll just kind of like list whatever whatever albums come to my head yeah. at that moment. I guess there's there's maybe a difference here between the implication of subjectivity versus things that when you put them down, you kind of like put them down in stone. And especially like, I'm not fond of, especially like music press doing these grand declarations, like the Rolling Stones, like 500 lists, of yeah. 500 songs, 500 albums, stuff like that. Because- it seems to imply an ability to those of you who have listened to uh, yeah. to Ghost Notes for some time. This may come as a shock to you, but neither Corey nor, nor I are particularly fond of implying objective quality of music. <laughs> Not a big fan, no. But I think partly I, I agree with you, and I think that these things are sort of framed in a way that imply if not objectiveness, then definitiveness. Yes. And I think that's a big distinction between something that's published and something that's a casual conversation, right? Because if you had if you had given me a full list of five Bob Dylan songs at the beginning of the episode, I don't think anyone would have heard that as like, this is Polyphonic's definitive rating. Like, if you check back in with him in like a month, he will give you the exact same list. This is 100% the best, five best Bob Dylan songs in order because it, it was clearly off the cuff. Whereas if you put out a video that you spent like 60 to 100 hours working on, I don't, I don't actually don't know how long a polyphonic video takes, but I assume it's at least that long. If it was a top 10 video, it would not take that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you'd spend at least 20 of those hours animating the Bob Dylan icon to go move yes, exactly right. That is uh, true. <laughs> trust me, I, I know you, Noah. <laughs> but like... I think if you put that out there, it becomes this much more definitive thing. And I I should be clear that, like, I think probably more than Noah, I don't really mind this as a thing. Like, I, I don't think it's a good thing and it's a thing I avoid, but it's not something that I think is, like, super harmful. Although it, I do think that it's not a great way to think about music, and I think that it can lead to some kinds of harm down the road. We can get into that a little bit later. But, like... It's something that I more look at and roll my eyes than something where I'm like, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. And I don't think that's what you're saying either. I think like a lot of things, it's it's a kind of like mode of discussion that was, it, I think it functioned really well in the pre-internet age. You know, like I think when most people are, are the way they're engaging with music media and stuff like that is like you know, getting magazines, it it makes a lot more sense to kind of like, you know, get this in a monthly magazine and go to the record store and compare notes with people and stuff. But I think, I think one of the, one of the struggles that I have with it is inevitably, well, anything on the internet turns toxic, but I feel like music lists inevitably when they're posted on the internet turn very, very toxic very fast because of exceptions or omissions or things like that. And it's not not just people saying, well, you know, I personally disagree with this list. I would have, you know, like a Rolling Stone higher or something like that. It's people saying like, well, this organization- the top 500, you can't get like a Rolling (laughs) Stone higher. Exactly, yeah. 
yeah, Rolling Stones top 500. Number one is like a Rolling Stone. Number two, two. is by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> anyway, go on. I just think that it's maybe an outdated mode of discussion that I think yeah. is, I think it's kind of poisoning the well of of music discourse because inevitably whenever one of these lists comes out, it's a big deal on like music Twitter yeah. and in, in the music sphere and inevitably it I, I just can't help but roll my eyes and get frustrated at the whole discourse around these lists yeah i think it sort of reflects a thing that we danced around in our last episode which is sort of the nature of online content is that you know like you said when it comes out in a magazine that's an invitation to debate your friends yes Right, like you and I can sit down and be like, well, Rolling Stone said this, how do we feel about that? But when it's published online because of the way online culture has developed and because of the accessibility of online creators, it almost becomes an invitation to debate the creator. Yes. And that raises the stakes in a way that can be really not great. And you see this like in, in all sorts of online work. This is not unique to music lists, but like whenever I publish a video... I will get people who want to try to change my mind about something in the song. And, you know, I'll also get people pointing out like, oh, this thing you said is just wrong, which fair enough. But I'll get people being like, I think you are in the wrong key. And the the stakes here are me convincing you, this big internet creator person, which, you know, come on, not that big a deal. But you get this, this, again, higher stakes, this sense of like, I can convince the person who made this and I can change the list. Whereas if you and your friend in like 1995 are reading like a Rolling Stones top 500 ever, I don't know that there was one in 1995. I feel like that was an early 2000s thing anyway. Yeah, I think it was like 2004 was the first one, but I'm sure there were lists. Yeah, okay, so they, they published like a top, some top 10 list in 1995. I am confident of that <laughs> a priori without having checked. I have not seen it, but that seems very likely. Uh, but anyway, so let's say 2004. 2004, the top 500 greatest songs ever comes out, the original one, and you're looking it over. You don't think you can change Rolling Stone's mind. You're not going to write the, a letter to the editor and be like, hey, you need to swap number 23 and number 24. Like, yeah. that's not really... Like, you might write the letter. I don't know you. But you don't have a real serious belief that it's going to make a difference to the creator of the list. And so the the stakes aren't as high because you can't change what they put down in their quote-unquote definitive list. Whereas these days, and there's only a limited extent to which this is true, and it varies a lot by creator, but there is this sense that you can send me an email to debate me about a video I made. Yeah. And most of the time... I'm going to ignore that email, but there's this feeling that you have this opportunity that just didn't exist before internet content. And I, I think I think part of that too is that a lot of I, I mean a lot of the the content creators on YouTube and stuff like that are smaller. They're like like I'm yeah. one person, like you're a small team, and I think that 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 seems to invite discussion in a way that then gets transposed up to even when these larger institutions do do stuff, people treat them as if yeah. they're they're just one person whose mind can be changed. Yeah, it's how we've learned to engage with media. 
And you, you see this a lot in terms of like the ownership that people feel over their favorite like media as well. Like if you look at YouTube, you'll see a lot of people feel a lot of, again, ownership over the channels they watch. They feel like those people owe them something. They feel like they should be making content in a specific way. And, you know, that that's not to say that people haven't always felt this about, like, movies and TV shows they like. But yeah. I think, and this is pure supposition on my part. I have not done a thorough case study on this. But it feels to me like you're seeing that translate a lot to the way we talk about, like, big blockbuster movies and, like, major AAA games in that we expect more response and more sort of concessions to what the... You see this with the MCU, for instance. Or actually, probably the best example is the Snyder Cut. Oh, yeah. That was a whole campaign for years of fans being like, I don't like the movie you made. Please change it to a different movie. And I don't know, maybe that was a thing in like the 80s. I wasn't alive then. Well, I was alive for one month of that. (laughs) So, you know, clearly an expert, native 80s child. But it's just, I don't know. It feels different. And it feels like a lot of that probably comes from the way we engage with online content because, again, that is, like Noah said, single people a lot of the time or small teams that we can more easily get in touch with than you can with, like, a Marvel movie production that's hundreds of people. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and I think I think the thing is that when there is a large institution doing this stuff, it's a lot easier for people to kind of, like, you know— throw insults at them and be like, oh yeah, like this yeah. this big institution is terrible. But then what happens with music lists is people take that same energy. It's kind of like a, a, a cross-pollinization where people act as, yeah. as if large institutions are individuals, but then they also act as if like opinions on something like music are taken as a reflection on an individual's quality or, you know, intelligence or like, how justified they are in talking about music and stuff like that. And I think that that's, yeah, I, I think I think what we're getting at here is lists themselves aren't the problem. I mean, fundamentally, no. a list is just a bunch of words. So it really depends how, like, you know, people engage with it. What you're doing, it. how you're framing yeah. it. Yeah, and the intention yeah. behind the list. I think the other thing, too, is there are list formats that I'm more okay with. Something that I really like is Topsters. Have you ever seen Topsters? No. You, you've probably I'm seen them old. before. The website is never-ending to- chart rendering. But oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Those, I think, are yeah, a yeah. lot more kind of like... I think that that's a lot more full and engaging way to show your music preferences because that is opening for discussions. It's less about saying, like, you know, Led Zeppelin IV is objectively better than Houses of the Holy, and it's more about saying, well, you know, I've got Led Zeppelin IV in this tier and Houses of the Holy in another. And in general, I guess tier lists are better than lists, straight-up lists. Yeah. I think tier lists allow for more more accurate ratings because you don't—if you have, like, a list, you are, at the end of the day, picking utterly incomparable things— and deciding which one you're going to bias towards. Like, is Led Zeppelin four better than Dark Side of the Moon? Yeah. I, I don't know how to measure that. Yeah. But if I can say they're both, you know, A tier or whatever, then I, I that gives me, which honestly is not where I would put either of them, but that's, that's a whole different thing. But 
if we wanted to sort of say like this is where this that this is roughly this good, that allows for a lot more ambiguity. And I think ambiguity is important in understanding musical quality. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I think that I think that's something you touched on something there. That's one of my big issues with music lists as well, especially grand encompassing lists that are, you know, like best songs or albums of all time or, you know, best things of the decade or stuff like that is you're fundamentally comparing very different things from different eras, different cultural contexts. And the idea of like, What's the difference between something that's good in 1918 and something that's good in 1984 and something that's good in 2021? You know, like, there's so many... Well, the difference is a thing from 1918 isn't actually good. (laughs) Yeah, naturally. That's that's not my actual opinion. (laughs) Please don't get mad at me, Twitter. That is just a joke. And I think think the bigger lists, what they tend to do, like, when you look at, like... The Rolling Stones lists, they cement this canon of these are the great artists. And if you look at the Rolling Stones list, like most of them are 60s and 70s artists. And like there is this really obnoxious perception that follows a lot of people around. And by a lot of people, I mean, people are always asking me this. Um, That's like, oh, well, why is why was stuff better then? And I think that things like these lists are reinforcing that canon that is not at all true or accurate. Yeah, that was sort of very much where I was hoping to lead this discussion. So I think I want to like dig in a little bit more on that. Yeah. Uh, But I think, like you said, I think the big problem again isn't the lists themselves. It isn't this idea that you can sort these things. It is that you're creating a canon. You're establishing a list of things. And again, this is all goes back to regular viewers of my channel will probably remember the time I made a video called Beethoven Sucks at Music. Yes. And that was talking about a similar idea, which is the video wasn't actually about Beethoven being bad. I don't think Beethoven is bad. Hot take. The argument I wanted to make was that it was okay for me to feel that way if I did. And I think yes. that that's the thing that really gets lost when you start to establish these canons. And so probably to define terms, I, I may not need to do this, but just to be just to be safe, a canon is basically like a list of things that quote unquote count. Like the most famous example probably is the Bible. The Bible has a canon. There are canonic books that are officially part of the Bible. They're divinely inspired according to the belief system that shaped that particular text. And Similarly, when we look at, say, classical music, we have a canon of artists who we also view as sort of being either artists or works, depends on how you look at it, but people that we consider just objectively great, above suspicion in terms of quality. And those are people like Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, you you know the names. I think one thing to note here is that there are a lot of positive functions to a canon. Like, it's not all bad. Yeah, I agree. Canons have a lot of utility, but they also carry a lot of baggage. And one of the big things that happens is that, like you were saying, you get this sense that in order to be an expert, in order to be someone worth listening to about music in general, you first have to demonstrate that you have the correct opinions about the canonic bands, right? Like, you know, I... I'm not a huge fan of Dark Side of the Moon, honestly. 
I like money, but most of the rest of it does very little for me. I significantly prefer the wall and wish you were here. I'm also but, fond of money. Hey. <laughs> hey. Uh, but, well, that's why I keep talking about Pink Floyd. But <laughs> I, broadly speaking, it's not an album that does much for me. And so when I talk about Pink Floyd, I'm much more likely to talk about The Wall or Wish You Were Here and sort of hide my feelings about... Hide my feelings sounds so melodramatic, but sort of not really discuss my takes on Dark Side of the Moon. And part of that is sort of a personal thing because I don't... Again, we've talked about sort of the, the value of sort of broadcasting that you don't like stuff. There's, I don't think that's a very useful thing to do. And so I don't think there's much value in me standing up and being like, hey... I don't think Dark Side of the Moon is good because, best case scenario, I convince you, a person who likes Dark Side of the Moon, that you're wrong. And that sucks. That's a bad yeah, thing to yeah. want. Best so, case scenario, you talk somebody out of liking something that probably has some sort of emotional or personal resonance for them. Yeah, that's not my goal. That's not who I want to be. That's not the impact I want to have on the world. But... I also often feel like when this stuff comes up, it feels sort of weird to just recuse myself from the conversation and sort of step back and be like, I'm not going to engage with this because I really don't have much to say about most of Dark Side of the Moon because I just, I don't listen to it that much. It's it's not a thing I enjoy. And Dark Side will usually be at the top of like any like best Pink Floyd albums list. And it will usually be near the top of any best rock albums list because it's such a important canonic piece of rock history. And that's great. Like, again, I am all in favor of you enjoying Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, Noah specifically, no one else, just yeah. Noah. <laughs> but, but like, I I don't feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm being a bit dramatic here because it's not, it's not like I feel like people are mad at me for this opinion. I just, it becomes a hard thing to discuss. I think one of the things that you're talking about is that music lists and canons are used to gatekeep, yeah. right? Where it's like, yeah. I think music in general has a huge gatekeeping problem. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that has kept a lot of people, and especially a lot of people with different sensibilities outside of music, to the point that I would say, like, everyone's like, all, all of the, like, rock is dead. People don't know why was music better in the 60s and 70s. Because people in those music communities allowed outside ideas, you know? People in those music communities experimented with stuff outside of rock, whereas now in any of these kind of like, especially in the rock communities and these top 10 lists and stuff like that, I don't think rock is the only, are the only people that do this, but I think it's a lot more... Yeah endemic. Um, oh, I mean, have you talked to metalheads? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, metalheads are just rock, but more in literally every sense of the word. <laughs> uh, please direct any tweets about that to twitter.com slash polyphonic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but this is very much the thing is when you when you yeah. create these these kind of cycles of lists and inevitably when you look at a lot of these different lists, especially from like bigger institutions, we keep mentioning like Bob Dylan or Pink Floyd or stuff like yeah. that because these are the artists that always make it. Whereas you won't yeah. see, even even like in the same sense, you won't see like Beyonce celebrated in the same way, even though she is in pop circles celebrated a lot. But then you certainly, yeah. you certainly won't see like Ornette Coleman or Fela Cootie or, you know, people that, 
make really, really brilliant stuff that just doesn't operate in the same mode. Yeah, it's not rock. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think this comes back to a point that I, I do want to sort of stress throughout this is that, I, at least in my view, and I don't want to speak for Noah here, but music lists in this sort of thing aren't the problem. They're more of a symptom of other problems, and they're a useful way of understanding those problems. But like, if if you're currently working on a list of your 10 favorite albums ever, or you just published, or you're just reading other, like, that that's fine. I don't think that that's, that makes you a bad person, you know? I think that there are issues in the ways that we as a culture conceptualize music that music lists are a useful lens through which to understand, like canonization, much more so than lists are inherently evil and you should never make a list under any circumstances. Yeah, I agree. But something I want to say, I want to talk about is I think that there are other options than lists for ways that you can, you know, talk about music and possibly even kind of more productive, interesting ways that you can talk about music beyond lists. But lists are a great entry point. And and one of the big things that I wanna I wanna mention too is that like the way that I really got into music was reading lists and making lists. Like I I think it is yeah. it is a good way to get into music. But I think the problem is that a lot of people kind of use this and learn that's how they that's how they learn to listen to music and to engage with music because the thing is engaging with music talking about music appreciating music all of these things are skills like anything else and the more time you put into it the better and when i was in high school that was how i got into stuff because i was like f- fresh out of you know, being a child, I was learning how to have music opinions. That is something that you learn. And a lot of people learn it from these lists, which is, I guess, a double-edged knife because it teaches you about a lot of music and it's a great way to find music you love. Like, there's definitely times where, like, I'm sure there were times where I, like, you know, after listening to Pink Floyd, I was like, oh, like, top 10 prog rock bands. And I mean, the fact that Pink Floyd aren't actually prog yeah. rock is a whole other thing, but they'll be on those well, lists. <laughs> um, and and like that's... The genres aren't real. Yeah, yeah. All of our episodes are just the exact same thing, Corey. We just... Yeah, that's true. I think this hits on, again, a point we were sort of brushing by earlier, which is that lists are a really accessible way of engaging with music. Yes. And they're, they're very low effort, both from a creative side... And from a consuming side, and I, I, that's good and bad, right? That I don't mean that as like, oh, they suck. I, I just mean that off the top of my head, I could give you tons of top five lists of best songs by various artists or best albums or best artists in various categories. It's not that hard. And that's really useful as a way to get in because it's like if we were arguing that in order to engage with music, and understand music and care about music and discuss music, you had to start by writing a 300-page dissertation on your favorite song. How do you know what I was about to propose? <laughs> I've, I've known you for a long time, <laughs> Noah. But but yeah, that is a huge, is itself a form of gatekeeping, right? It's a way of saying, like, if you don't put this much effort in, you don't care at all. Yeah. And that's bad. And so lists and things like it, and like to an extent, video essays are a way of lowering that barrier and being like, okay, here's how you start to engage with it. But then if you want to continue engaging with it, you then have to sort of, I don't want to say step up your game, 
but doing higher effort forms of engagement, transitioning from lists and stuff like that to things that are more nuanced and complex and more require more effort, require more thought. And I, I think that the problem isn't so much lists. It's that like, there's this incentive and this tendency among like, not, not everyone, but it's certainly among like, you know, rock fans and not, not all rock fans even, but so to, just to get up, I'm going to finish that sentence and just say, there's a tendency to get stuck with stuck at the list level. Yeah. And, to start thinking of lists as the way to think about music. And that I think is less good. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like there's almost a, a default to, people almost default to like, if I'm going to talk about music or if I'm going to share my music opinion, the list is the way to do it. And I, I do also think, I think a lot of people put a lot of thought and care into lists and I don't want to discount that. Yeah. But I also just think, they're low effort content. Like there's a reason why, you know, I don't usually like to dunk on other YouTubers, but I will happily dunk on like Watch Mojo, you know, or like content farms like that. Watch Mojo is not a YouTuber. It's just a YouTube channel. Watch Mojo is is kind of like a dystopian like hellscape. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, well, I I don't yeah. They're a content farm. They're not YouTubers. They just upload, which, you know, not to get all no true Scotsmen on us, but, you know, I think there's an important distinction between, like, content creators and, you know, content farms. And I think there's something about music lists as well where uh, to, to kind of shift perspective a little from making them to engaging with them, I don't actually think you get... I don't think there's very many lists that you get meaningful, you know, like like you learn meaningful things, you get meaningful engagement with the texts by looking where they are in these lists. Like yeah. even even Rolling Stone like brings in people to do little write-ups on these lists, but I don't I don't actually think you're getting that much from it. Like you're Yeah, mo most of that stuff is not is going to be the stuff you like you probably already know. It's not like super in-depth journalism on it. Exactly. And I think that, again, to, I, I keep coming back to this, but I think sort of the, the way to get value out of lists isn't to read them, it's to like debate them with your friends. Yes. It's to sort of think about how would I do this differently? How do I feel about this list? That, that's a way of, I think, engaging meaningfully with music through the format of a list. And instead of just being like, oh, well, Rolling Stone said that this song is 35 songs better than this other one. That that's not a meaningful result. The the question is like, how do you feel about that? Does that match your experience? W would you rank them the same way, and why not? What would have to change about your experience of those songs to align with their ranking? And I do think that is a way that a lot of people engage with lists. Like, I don't I don't yeah. think everyone's just taking Rolling Stone as gospel. I mean, I especially think Rolling Stone people aren't taking as not. gospel. I think the other thing, too, is I just wish there was more types of music content out there you know where like i obviously yeah. i love i love video essays and i i like like big long think pieces and stuff like that but i feel like i feel like lists are just kind of a a, a low bar and coming from a music journalist background i don't really 
have that much respect for the craft of making a list. Whereas like the craft of like writing a feature piece or interviewing somebody or even even writing an album review, which I have my own issues with album reviews, but even that I think engages with the text on a more meaningful level than lists. And that's that's where my my problem with lists as a medium, I think most of it fundamentally stems down to the fact that they are surface level. They're surface level and they sell. Like that's yes. I think a, a big thing is that like people react well to lists in general. Like, best of lists or whatever, people like lists. They fit well in the way that our brains work. And so they're a very easy way to, for instance, not not to like, you know, but on, on YouTube, a list, presenting your ideas as a list is a really effective way to get people to check out your ideas because they're like, okay, this is going to have this format. It's going to say this thing, this thing, this thing. I remember at one point, one of my most viewed videos ever is uh, called Three Tips for Writing a Great Melody. And I laid out three specific ideas, but I didn't present them in a list format. And I got a lot of people being like, what are the three tips? How do I, because they go in expecting this very specific list format that they're used to. And I forgot to do that, I guess. (laughs) But I I think that, that it's a really effective way. And that makes it potentially more dangerous. Although again, like I, I always keep coming back to this, but just like it, you're allowed to think about the music you like in lists if that's a useful way for you to conceptualize your music. Like, that's not what, I don't think what either of us is saying. I don't want us to ever gatekeep music discussion or things like this. Yeah. I just, I just like to challenge and I like to think that there are more interesting ways of engaging with music out there. Yeah, I agree. I know a lot of people like music lists and I'm sure this will probably piss people off. It's just, I don't, I, I don't really see that much value. The value I see from music lists is helping people discover music. Yeah. But even then, like, I think there's, you can do that without the list structure. Like you can kind of just do like, you know, uh, like, or, or without the, like, you know, top 10 list structure. Cause like you could say like, yeah. Five bands to listen to if you like Led Zeppelin is a list, but it's not like a like top yeah. 10 list. It's not a like the five best blues rock bands or whatever. It's just these are five bands yeah. that you'll probably like if you like Zeppelin. Like if you like Zeppelin, you'll probably like Free, you know? Like it's not, I'm more yeah. amenable to that sort of thing. Yeah, which I think speaks to one of the core issues, which I think we've hit on a little bit already, but that. When you're putting together a best of list, there's this implicit assumption. And I think this is really important when we talk about sort of how we discuss things to think about what the implied assumptions are, because there always will be. There are always things that we are assuming in order to build the structures through which we engage with concepts. That's just how yeah. concepts work. Yeah. But one of the underlying assumptions of a best of list is that some songs have to be, or some works or some artists or albums or whatever, have to be better than others. That there is and can be discovered through careful scrutiny a best song. Yes. Or a best song in a particular category, or a best album in a particular category. That there must be a number one, a number two, a number three. And that, I think, is not necessarily the intent, but it is an implication. It The system falls apart if that's not true. It's built into the the medium of the list. 
Yeah, and I think that that sort of comes back to, because we were talking about like tier lists a little bit, and I think that that's sort of different because it still assumes that some albums are better than others, but it doesn't assume that they have to be. Yeah. Like in theory, a tier list could be all S tier. Yeah. There's no reason a priori that that can't be true. It's just not a super useful way to structure your tier list. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you go like top five best albums ever and your number one spot is a tie between all the albums, (laughs) you did a bad list. Hey, how'd you know about my top five albums? (laughs) 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 There's this trend in a lot of stuff in in a lot of like art discussion to almost try to like use like not really the scientific method but you know you know apply yeah. a kind of like strict logicism to art and and create this i i think there's this over reliance on this kind of like you know you, you know if we're getting like really philosophical about it like modernism and stuff like that right like there's there's this idea that quality exists out there and can be quantified in one way or another yeah i mean we've all seen the prager u chart <laughs> that is correct and i think that that's i think that's really harmful to existing as a music fan in this world, you know? Like, it makes it more difficult to be somebody whose music falls outside of the typical, like, whose music taste falls outside of the typical canon, or even somebody who comes from a different cultural background, because that's something that is is baked into canon a lot, is very much it's certain cultural norms from the dominant culture are baked into the canon. And often a lot of those cultural norms are not very good. There's a lot of no shit baked into that. Not good. Yeah, I think that that's one of the big things with canons in general is that, again, like, like I was saying, when you want to engage with a concept, you have to make underlying assumptions. Yeah. There are always going to be things that you are assuming are true that you are not engaging with at some level or that aren't you aren't presenting and that that's going to be true no matter how thoroughly you specify like that's just the infinite complexity of thought but wow i i just said the infinite complexity of thought on a podcast yep yep <sighs> i was just thinking of that this <laughs> is this is my life this is <laughs> you've reached peak cory but yeah Jesus. Ultimately, when you are building a canon, then you are making assumptions. You're making assumptions about what sorts of music, what ideas about music are going to be canonized. And this is a big problem in music education. And it's one that I think, you know, music theory and music education in general are starting to wrestle with, but are still very much wrestling with is this idea that we've built this entire structure around the way that music works that is basically the way that the music of Bach through Wagner worked. And there's a lot of diversity in that. There's a lot of, like, I say diversity, I mean, like, in terms of, like, styles of music, musical ideas. I don't mean in terms of demographics. There is some of that, not nearly as much, especially once you look at who we canonize, right? There's, if you go back to the actual romantic period, there are black composers 
who are doing really interesting stuff, but they don't tend to wind up in these lists of with people like Beethoven and Chopin and Liszt and whatever. So, but anyway, just, just to clarify that point. But if you look at what music is now, it's very much not that. Yeah. And modern music really isn't based on Beethovenian ideas. In, and and there, are, there are some ways that you can translate some of that to what modern musicians are doing. It's not like we've completely reinvented the wheel or anything. But it's a very different wheel. And that sort of gets lost when you build this canon because, again, you are sort of, you have to cement these ideas. And this leads to, again, like you were talking about this sort of golden age of rock myth where there was a period, like when, when, if you ask people like the best rock bands of all time, Almost everything, every band on that list will have been active in the 70s or late 60s. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe Nirvana. Nirvana, I think, sometimes makes that list. Yeah, yeah. I but, was going to say, like, a couple bands from the 80s and maybe the 90s. There is no band post-2000, even though we're 20 years past 2000 and rock yeah. has still gone on. Yeah. Like, I just, like... This is a thing that I, I've run into. I may have talked about this already, but when I run my like polls on Patreon to pick my song analysis stuff, like I will constantly try and throw in stuff that I remember from my teenage years, stuff that I love, like Paramore. And like occasionally I can sneak one through. Like I did an Evanescence video, I just did an MCR video. But most of the time, like if I put anything from the last two decades, it just gets like maybe like 10 votes as opposed to like the winners which are getting like 60 or 70. And so there's a sort of this idea that, you know, I, I don't think it's really necessarily even an active idea for a lot of people that modern music is bad. I mean, there, there are certainly people who will argue that. I made a video fairly recently about one of them, a particularly prominent one. <laughs> but I think that there's, it's built into the way that we build canons that things have to stand the test of time first before we bother caring about them. And we've sort of established where the baseline for having stood the test of time is, and that's in the 70s. And it doesn't really seem to be moving. Yeah. Like, that, I, when I go back to, like, when I was, like, 10 or whatever, like, in the early 2000s, I don't think that we we were still talking about bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all these bands that were working in the 70s and then fast forward 20 years, those are still mostly the people we're talking about. Again, you sort of, Nirvana enters the conversation sometimes. I think of Queen mostly as an 80s band. I don't know if they were also active in the 70s, but they're in the conversation. Yeah, they, they were active but, in the late 70s to 80s. Yeah, that that's what I thought, but I just wanted to make sure because one person here knows a lot about rock history and it's not me. I guess, yeah, I think Nirvana is really the only band that really enters that conversation that wasn't active in the 70s. And that's, I, I remember people talking about Nirvana in that same way when I was in, when I was like early teens. And so that really hasn't changed either. It's not like we've expanded. We've just decided, okay, Nirvana, I guess, belongs in this conversation. But no one else. And it just, it, the goalposts are not moving. And I think a big reason, a big reason for that is probably because of how much Nirvana in their sound owe to those bit like Nirvana yeah. were hugely influenced by like Zeppelin and Boston and stuff like that. And I think yeah. I think the fact that they're still 
kind of treading in that same territory is why they have been adopted into the canon and basically no one else has. Yeah, they they have a lot of that. And they also sort of were positioned at a really important time in rock history where I think, you know, looking back, there's sort of this sense that old rock was dying. Yes. That what rock was, and that's sort of, and I, I don't know, it feels like, you know, the late 80s was sort of the first time that people might sort of point to as like, oh, rock was dying, where you sort of had like arena rock, glam rock, the things that like people don't take as seriously, even though I think a lot of that stuff is still pretty good. But you you have this sense that that, that stuff isn't serious. And then Nirvana represents a return to serious music that, you know, is accompanied by bands like Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and whatever that, you know, I mostly don't see in those conversations maybe a little bit Pearl Jam, but not even that really. But one of the things that like, oh, this was years ago at this point, I did a video about Audio Slaves Like a Stone. Yeah. And I think that as someone who went to music school and was surrounded by vocalists and like well, vocalists who love Chris Cornell, guitarists who love Tom Morello, like I had this like sense that everyone talked about Audio Slave. And then I published a video and found out that even though like it's it's audio slave, no one cared. <laughs> like, no one cares about this band that's like is mostly Rage Against the Machine, but with the guy from Soundgarden, two bands that everyone loves. Yep. But there's still sort of, and I think did a lot of really interesting stuff. Like the, the, you know, super groups we've talked about this before. Super groups can often don't really work very well. I think Audio Slave is kind of an exception, at least. They have at least some really interesting. Like Like a Stone is fantastic. It's a fantastic. Song. Oh, absolutely. But. It's just sort of, I think, partly because there's still a fairly modern band compared to Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. Like, Audio Slave is more recent, and it wound up being, I think, something that people cared a lot less about outside of, like, specifically performance music school rock circles. I mean, I think to wrangle this back to where we started, I think these sorts of things are, this is because... To use the Audio Slave example, part of the reason is because, like, I don't think their self-titled debut, even though, like, pretty well-received, a lot of people really like it, like, yeah. I don't think it would make it onto even people who, like, really love it, I don't think it would make it onto their, like, their top 10 albums, even though it's three times platinum, apparently, I'm learning now. Huh. And that's the thing where, you know, you kind of... In creating, in seeking to categorize and create these things, inevitably, like, even if your top 10 kind of changes from time to time, as it should, like, it should change from minute to minute. But even if it is changing, there's probably still somewhere between 15 and 20 albums that are floating in there. And so because of that, they will be disproportionately talked about. Yeah. And I think that ends up with all of these things, even things that, like, you as a music fan may really love that just, like, don't get spotlighted when, you know, top 10 lists and top 5 lists are the way that you discuss music. Like, there's a lot of bands full of stuff that I... There's a lot of bands that I love and I listen to a lot of. Like, one of my favorite bands is Alexis on Fire. I loved Alexis on Fire growing up. Sure. I, outside of maybe if I said, like, my top 10 Canadian bands or something like that, I don't think they would make any other list of mine if put on the spot. 
But I put on Crisis, and I get just as much joy out of that as I do out of listening to Dark Side of the Moon or Highway 61 or something like that. And I think that that's something that gets lost when all of your musical conversations are framed within top 10, the best of the best. Because there's certain things that you just like, wouldn't call the best, you know, or things that you love yeah. that you would not put in your albums or artists or things like that. I think that speaks to sort of the performative aspect of music conversation. I've been reading a master's thesis about comedy music by a guy called Scott Greenberg, and he refers in there to what he calls the self-conscious nature of taste, which I think is a really useful way of thinking about this stuff, where when I say Dark Side of the Moon is a great album, I'm expressing an opinion, but I'm also fishing for a reaction, right? Yeah. Like, I am trying to show you inherently that, you know, you and I are on the same page. And so I am picking things that will do that or that won't do that if I actively want to alienate you for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it's not just showing that you're on the same page. It's also just, it's also showing, like, that you have, like, capital T taste. Yeah. You know, like... I say that I'm I'm showing that I understand what good music is. Yeah, and we we attach a lot of our identities to our taste in media in general, like specifically music, but also you know other media as well. I don't want to claim music has a monopoly on that, but we express a lot of our identity through what we like, and so part of telling you my say top five favorite albums isn't so much telling you what my favorite albums are but it's telling you who I am through a list of five albums. And in that sense, you know, you're looking at that not just as like, oh, is this a good list? Do I, you're looking at that as like, is this person presenting themselves in a way that I appreciate through this information? Am I learning that they are the sort of person I would get along with because we have similar taste? Or are they telling me that they like things that I don't like And so that then incentivizes you when you're giving those lists because we as people tend to like being liked. You're then incentivized to include the albums that you think will get you that reaction, will get you people being like, yes, you did it. This is correct. A plus opinion having. And I think the interesting thing about that is there's there's kind of like a formula to it where like, you have a couple things from the canon and then some obscure thing to show that you're not just a trend follower. Like you also have your own obscure tastes that are the same as everyone's obscure tastes. But uh, I I really like what you're talking about with like the, the performativity of it all. And even like you said, this was a paper on comedy music, right? Yeah. And that's a thing where like, I know a lot of people that like Weird Al I do not know anybody that would put Weird Al in their top favorite musicians, even if they listen to and really enjoy him. I personally am not a huge Weird Al fan, but I love Flight of the Concords. I think yeah. they're hilarious. I, I would probably never say, yeah, you know, like some of my favorite bands are like Led Zeppelin and Kendrick Lamar and Flight of the Concords. Yeah, I, I personally feel the same way about Weird Al. I tend to prefer sort of original comedy music as opposed to parodies. Just We've talked about this in yeah. our cover songs episode. But I, I think, you know, bands like Lonely Island, Flight of the Concords, Tenacious D, even like... Tim Minchin. Like they might be giants even, which is a lot less yeah. like comedy than some of those. Like... You know, there's a lot. Anyway. We should do a comedy music episode. We should. I'll add it to the list. 
But yeah, real quickly, like if if you look at those bands, there's always a sort of almost apology to it when you're like, oh, I yeah. I love the Lonely Island, but they're not serious music, you know. Yeah, Beethoven wouldn't have written "I'm on a boat," so. Yeah, but Mozart might have. Mozart might have. That's true. That's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> but and and that's not that well. They to. It's wildly off topic. It should probably save this for the comedy episode. But you see this a lot in the way we talk about Mozart. We sort of bury his very sort of comedic side. He, he you know, the famous example is Lich Mich im Arsch, which translates yeah, exactly. to roughly the thing you think it does. And and was famously sampled by, by famously, I mean, nobody remembers that this exists. ICP did a song sampling that produced by Jack White and it's yeah. it's something it's something that's yeah that is something but yeah anyway th- this is sort of getting off topic into a topic we might want to cover in the future but i think the point is that like when you're talking about your musical taste you're not just giving a i'm going to use the word objective here we all understand that yeah, i don't mean yeah. literally like scientifically objective but you're not giving an objective rundown of the albums that bring you the most joy, the albums you like the most or the albums you listen to the most or any sort of measurable, that's not even measurable, but any sort of definitive quantity that you can attach to these things in order to rank them. What you're doing, again, is is saying, this is who I am. And yeah. this, is, this is what I like because of who I am. And that then gives you an incentive to, we, we, you know, this is a whole thing with, you know, social media where there, there's incentives to present yourself in the best light. And in the same way, there's incentives when you're putting together a list of music to not include that thing, you know, maybe just don't mention like 1989. Maybe yeah. you love 1989. I love 1989. It's a great album. But maybe maybe you just sort of don't don't talk about that one. You leave that off the list, not because it doesn't belong there, but because you know people will be like, "What? Well, ew, Taylor Swift? Why?" Which is not fair. Taylor Swift is great again. I mean, I do I do think these days Taylor Swift has entered the canon a little bit more. But yeah, well, I think the pop canon and, and yeah, same, like that's true. Again, I, I'm coming at this from a very rock culture perspective because that's the culture I'm most embedded in. Yeah. And I think in rock culture, there's still a lot of bias towards artists like Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Yeah. And I think there there are certainly people who would be completely unashamed to put Taylor Swift and Beyonce as like their top artists of all time. Yeah. And, you know, I think that would be a totally justifiable decision. Any decision is justifiable as long as it's meaningful to you, to clarify. But I think in rock, there's still very much an aversion to pop acts and yeah especially to female pop acts but like i think that because of that if if you're trying to present yourself as someone with good rock taste if that's an important part of your identity then you're not necessarily going to mention that you know lemonade is one of the greatest albums of all time even though it is oh it very because much is it absolutely is. If you haven't listened to Lemonade, please stop listening to this podcast and go listen to Lemonade. Lemonade is far better than this podcast. I can promise yeah. you that. No, I, yeah, they, they spent so much more time on it. <laughs> but those sorts of things, it, it's not so much that you're lying. You know, I, I don't want to say like, you know, like if you ask me top five albums, I just wouldn't mention Dark Side of the Moon because it's, 
you know, it would fit on a list that would get me credibility in rock circles, but I'm just not going to talk about it. But I think this sort of, one, one example that comes to mind, and this is a thing that I would like to talk about more in depth in a future episode as well, uh, but I did a video about Aqualung, the oh, Death Hotel song. great album. Uh, yeah, great album. And I mentioned at the beginning that there was a possibility, like if you asked me to pick a favorite album, I might say Aqualung. Like I, I'm much too wishy-washy to commit to that, but there's a good chance I, my answer at any given moment would be Aqualung if you pushed me. And I got a lot of people being like, whoa, what's wrong with you? Songs from the Wood is a much better album. And look, I get it. I like Songs from the Wood. I think Aqualung is better. Yeah. Like, and, and that's not a thing that I'm really interested in debating in terms of like measuring quality metrics or whatever. But Aqualung is a more meaningful, important album to me. And like I said, Songs from the Wood is great. But... I just I think there's this instinctive reaction of like, oh no, you said the wrong Jethro Tull album, so you're not a real Jethro Tull fan. Yeah, because you didn't say songs from the wood, the obscure. And this is getting it again. I this is a whole other topic, and that I don't want to open this entire can of worms. But you know, you, you get that sense that there is this correct answer that unlocks that door, and so you know, if I want to present myself as a real Jethro Tull fan. It's sort of uncool for me to say that Aqualung is my favorite album because Aqualung is the favorite album of people who haven't really listened to Jethro yeah. that much. And this, I think, comes back to you were talking about sort of the formula for like a top five list is like some of the ones we all agree on. Like, you know, like again, I keep using Dark Side of the Moon, but that's because, you know, it's one of it's the Dark albums. Side we all, of the Moon. That and yeah. like the White Album and like Led Zeppelin 4. You get yeah. a couple of those on there and then you get like something weird. And something yeah. that's not too weird, not too weird. You don't want to, again, you don't want to put like 1989 because people will be like, ooh, that's, eh. but you you put something that's a little more obscure, maybe like in utero instead of uh, nevermind or something. Something that says like, ah, but I, I listen to the weird stuff, you know. Like something obscure from an artist that is within the canon. Yeah, or, or more like. More obscure. Yeah. By the way, In Utero is also a better album than Nevermind in my opinion, but that's, that's. I disagree. Neither here nor again, there. Uh, yeah. A conversation for another time and a conversation for a time where our opinions don't, aren't presented as if they carry as much authorial yeah. weight. Uh, yeah. So, but that, I, yeah. So, in conclusion, top five reasons why lists are bad, go. <laughs> Noah doesn't like them. That's the only one. And you then, got it. You got it on the first yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, do you have any any more thoughts on this? I, I think as per usual, we've gotten a little rambly. Yeah, I, I think we've stayed largely on topic. I think really the, the big thing that I want to drive home, and I've said this a couple of times, is that in as much as there is a problem with ranking lists, that problem is that they're a symptom much more than that they are. And, you know, the, the, these things are cycles, right? Like, Introducing these ideas in this format can compel people to approach them in that particular way. But I think that the bigger issue isn't that lists themselves are bad. It's that lists represent certain underlying assumptions about how music works, and some of those underlying assumptions are bad. And so there are ways to do good lists. There are ways to engage with lists in useful ways. And Ultimately, you know, if, if you're just like reading a list in a magazine and being like, oh, okay, I, I agree with this or disagree with this and then moving on with your life, I don't think that's very harmful. But I think that there are questions worth asking about the way that 
music lists frame music as a concept. Yeah, I think that's a great conclusion. Thanks, I worked really hard on it. <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, the problem isn't the lists themselves. The one thing I would add to that is just... In general, look for more interesting ways to engage with music. Look at, rather than having every, and I know every conversation is, but rather than having a lot of your conversations as, you know, top five this or top five that, just look at, like, what's an underrated album from a band you love? That's a great conversation starter. You know, like... Hellbilly 2. Okay, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Or, like... If you, what's what's your favorite album to relax to? You know, like, what's an album Hillbilly that too. makes you feel immortal? Are we going to go three for three here? No. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that riff in Jesus Frankenstein, absolutely. But anyway. <laughs> But you know, I think I think there's there's just more interesting ways to engage with music than lists. That's yeah. what I'll add to your to your conclusion that you worked so yeah. hard on. Yeah. And it's just, again, like, to to add to your addition to my conclusion, (laughs) because this episode will never end, I think that, again, lists are low effort. Yes. And that's not inherently a bad thing. There's value in having easy-to-engage-with, easy-to-digest music content. But there's also value in pushing past that and going to, I don't want to say the next level, because that implies a strict progression, but you know what I mean. Going to more complex, more nuanced ways of engaging with ideas, I think... Going deeper. Taking the next step, or whatever your next step is. I think that, again, it's fine to engage with lists, it's fine to find that stuff interesting, but I think the problem is if that becomes your only way of engaging with music, and if it becomes sort of the default language of engaging with music. Yeah, I think that's the big thing, the default, because I don't think it's anyone's only way of engaging, but I think it's a lot of people's default way of engaging. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that I think is where some of the problems lie with like canonization and sort of, un, again, the underlying assumptions that we've discussed for over an hour at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So on that, yeah, lists are bad. Stay away from lists. Yeah. Only morally reprehensible people make them. Yeah. That I think is the conclusion. All right. Well, thank you all so much for watching. As always, you know where to find us. You know who we are. There's no great secret here. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just, you know, Google. And yeah, stay chill. All music is bad. So there's no point listing it. Be cool. Just whenever you're engaging with music, be cool. Yeah, just don't be lame. Just whatever (laughs) you do, do not be lame. (laughs) All right, take care. (laughs) See ya.